Good morning. Wow, y'all got a good sound system here. I love when I go to a place and you speak and it's very clear and, and loud. I'm glad to be here today. We've been looking forward to some time. I didn't know if this was going to work out the way things have been in our society with the virus, but I'm thankful that we've been able to do this. I want to mention some things in the foyer very quickly before I begin my lesson. There is a table out here as you exit to the right, and there's a lot of material on it. There's some GBN wristbands there. They're free. Everything on the table is free, and this has our uh, website uh, address on there. You can take those, get them for your children, anybody you think would like to wear one of those to advertise for us. We've got a number of different DVDs, and I know that DVDs are rapidly becoming a thing of the past, but it's still a good thing to be able to put something in someone's hand. We've got uh, the Ten Commandments, the truth about worship. It goes through all the acts of worship. What about the thief on the cross? Christian growth, something for new converts. Where do we go when we die? We're actually going to study that one this morning. What must I do to be saved is just a good basic plan of salvation, evangelistic tool. Why are there so many churches? We've probably had more conversions out of that lesson than just about any. What does the Bible say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Here's one that tells about some of the conversion accounts that we've had at GBN. There's also a lesson on there about my accident last year. The truth about moral issues. There's eight different moral issues. What about the lost books of the Bible? Saved without a doubt. It has to do with confidence and salvation. This is a detailed study of the plan of salvation. There's one on faith, repentance, baptism, and then objections that are made to baptism. This is one from Apologetics Press that deals with evidence for God and the uh, truthfulness of the Bible. And then this is similar to the old Jewel Miller series where it gives you a breakdown of uh, various lessons to bring a person from nothing up to becoming a Christian. So all of those are there. Please take those. They're free. There's a sign-up sheet and there's an envelope if you would like to donate to the Gospel Broadcasting Network. We never sell anything. All of our money to operate comes from free will donations of Christians and Churches of Christ. And so if you would like to help us with that work, uh, please uh, just let me know or you can pick up an envelope and mail it in or hand it to me and we will carry it back in. All right. Is the PowerPoint up and going here? Hit the big button. All right. Here we go. This morning we are going to cover a lesson that I don't have enough time to cover, so we're going to have to go very quickly through this. But this is a lesson I wrote years ago that I entitled The Journey of the Soul. We're going to talk about where we go when we die. Now, you know, if you ask people in the world this question, where do we go when we die, you're going to get a lot of different answers. Some are going to tell you the story of reincarnation. That is, if you, when you die, you're going to come back as another creature. And they say, if you've lived a bad life, you may come back as an animal. If you lived a good life, you may come back as a human being, and if you lived a really good life, you may come back as a rich, good-looking human being, and, you know, some people have the idea, don't swat that fly, it might be Uncle Ricky, you know, that sort of thing, and, of course, the Bible doesn't teach that. Some people hold the idea of ghosts, that is, when you die, your soul will haunt a particular area, it will remain in a house, your soul will, will roam that region, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Roman Catholic Church has given us the doctrine of purgatory. That is, you die, and if you haven't lived a good enough life to go to heaven, you will go to a temporary place of punishment until you've paid your debt, and then you can move on into a place of reward. The Bible doesn't teach that. 
And of course, very popular in the world today is the idea that when you die, you simply cease to exist. And of course, that is the idea that is held by the atheist. I wrote this lesson several years ago, and it is designed to explain what the Bible says happens to us when we die. Now, originally I entitled this lesson, The Soul from Birth to Eternity. But I went back and changed it because it occurred to me that's not really a good title. Now, I want you to watch this because I put together this chart for us to trace the journey of the soul. You see here on the left, we've got the world. We've got two arrows on it, one that is saved, one that is lost. The one that is lost is larger than the one that is saved. You know the obvious reason for that, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Matthew 7, 13, straight is the gate, narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that enter in thereat. But we're going to trace the soul, I said, from birth to eternity. I changed the name of that because it occurred to me the soul of man doesn't actually begin at birth, does it? The soul begins at conception. So watch when I click this. I went back and added this so that I have the soul coming from heaven. The reason I put that on there is because Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7, a verse that we oftentimes use at funerals to discuss death, says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it were, and the Spirit shall return to God who gave it. Hebrews 12 and verse 9 calls God the Father of spirits. And so the soul comes from God. And so what that means is at the point of conception... When that egg meets the sperm, a new human life is created and God places a soul in that new body. And so mama and daddy might give that child his physical characteristics, but they don't give him his soul. God gives him his soul. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so we are made in the image of God. Have you ever thought about what that means? What does it mean that we are made in the image of God? Brethren, what it means is I have a soul. It means that I am an individual who is going to live forever somewhere, forever and ever and ever. And so from the time God places that soul in me, that soul is going to dwell in this physical body until I die. Listen to what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1 says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, he calls this body a tent, that's interesting, We know that if our our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so he calls this body a tent. Why would he call this body a tent? A tent is something that you stay in temporarily. If you go out camping for the weekend, you don't take bricks and mortar and build a house. You build a tent. Why? Because you're going to be there a short time. And you see, my soul is going to dwell in this body a short time. That's why it is called a tent. And so for 70 years or 80 years, my soul dwells in this body. During that time, I'm going to love God with my soul, or I'm not going to. Doesn't Jesus say in Luke 10 and verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? During that time, I'm going to worship God with my soul, or I'm not. Doesn't John 4, 24 say God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth? And so for 70 years, my soul is going to dwell in this tent. All the while, this tent is wearing out. Listen to what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 12 as he describes the breakdown process of the body. He says, remember now your Creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. 
That is, before you start getting old and you start having pains and aches and the difficulties that come with being aged. He says, the years draw nigh that you say, I have no pleasure in them. I've heard many people when they get very old, they say, I'm tired. I'm ready to go be with the Lord. I'm tired of hurting in this body. He says, when the sun and the moon and the stars are not darkened. What's he describing? Gets to the point you start losing your eyesight, right? He says, the clouds do not return after the rain. In the days when the keepers of the house begin to tremble. What's he talking about when he says the keepers of the house tremble? You get old, your hands begin to shake. He says, the strong men bow themselves because they are weak. What's that a reference to? Your legs. Your your legs, they're your strong men. They're your support, but you get old and they give out. He says, the grinders cease because they are few. What do you think that's talking about? Start to lose your teeth. He says, those that look through the windows grow dim. You, you don't see as clearly as you did. He says, the doors are shut in the street. The sound of grinding is low. When one rises up at the sound of a bird. That is, you don't sleep as well as you did when you were a young person. The daughters of music are brought low. You don't hear as well anymore. He says, you are afraid of heights and there is terror in the way. Why would you be afraid of heights? If you get to the point and your legs are shaking and you're in a high place, well, that's going to be a terrifying thing. He says, and when the almond tree blossoms, what do you think that's talking about? If you ever see an almond tree when the leaves start to turn white or they start to turn gray and they've got that, that beautiful white hue, he said, it's like what happens on the top of your head. It turns right. In fact, I see some almond trees here this morning. In fact, in fact, sometimes the leaves just fall out and I see some of those as well. But he says, the almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper is a burden. What does that mean? Even this little small creature is now difficult. Desire fails, don't have the same desire you did as a young person. Man goes to his eternal home. The mourners go about the streets. You know what he's describing now. Remember your creator, he says, before the silver cord is loosed, before the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the fountain. Now listen to this. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it were, and the spirit shall return to God who gave it. And so what he says is, for 70 or 80 or 90 years, my soul dwells in this body. It's wearing out. It's getting old. It's going to die. And then our question is, what happens next? For 75 years, my soul has been in this body. What happens next? Psalm 90 and verse 10 says, the days of our years are 70 years. If by reason of strength they are 80, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off. Now listen to this part. And we fly away. He says, you'll live to be 70 years. If you're strong, you might live to be 80 years. He's just speaking in general terms here. He says, but then you're going to die and you're going to fly away. That's interesting language. Genesis 35 and verse 18 describes for us the death of Rachel. She died in childbirth when she was giving birth to her son Benjamin. The Bible says, and it came to pass as her soul was in departing. Isn't that interesting language? When you die, that's when your soul departs. That's why James 2.26 says the body without the spirit is dead. That's the biblical definition of death is when your spirit departs your body. So our question is when you die and your soul flies away, when your soul departs from your body, what happens to it? Where does it go? Now somebody says, well, Don, at the day of resurrection, we're all going to get a new body. I know that, but that's not our question right now. 
Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1 again. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building with God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Right now I'm in a tent. One day I'm going to get the resurrected body. He calls that a building. It's not temporary. But listen to verse 4. For we who are in the tent groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up in life. Now he uses some very interesting language here. He describes being in this body as a tent. We already talked about that. He describes the resurrected body as a building. We talked about that. But then he describes us being unclothed. What is that talking about? When is that going to occur? There's going to be a period of time when my soul is not going to have the tent and it's not going to have the body. There's going to be a time when my soul will be unclothed, if you will. It's not going to have a body. Now, when is that? It's going to be the time when I die and my soul leaves this body, but the day of resurrection hasn't come yet, so I don't have the resurrected body, there's going to be a time in which my soul doesn't have a body, and the Bible calls it unclothed. Where do I go when I die? Let's go to the next step on the chart. Of course, I put this little bridge in here representing death, and that's because Hebrews 9 and verse 27 says, It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. This is the journey each of us is going to take. You see the two paths, one is narrow, one is wide. Which path you will take depends on the life that you are living. All of us are going to die. That's going to take us to the next part of this chart. This whole second section on the chart is Hades. In fact, does this give me the circle there? Okay, it does not do that. Some, some places will do that. This whole second section is Hades. Now, I want you to get this in your mind because sometimes people get confused because when they hear Hades, they think of hell. They think Hades is the place of punishment, and that is not right. The word Hades actually is a word that means the dwelling place of the dead. Hades is the holding area for disembodied spirits. Good people who die go to Hades. Bad people who die go to Hades. I think the reason we have gotten confused about this is the King James Version has taken two different Greek words, Hades, which is the dwelling place of the dead, and Gehenna, which is the word for hell. It's taken those two different Greek words and it has translated both of them as hell. And that's incorrect. Only the King James has done that. Every other version has done this correctly. But the King James translating it that way has caused a lot of confusion. Now, if you don't understand the difference in these when you read the King James, it's going to cause you further confusion. For example, in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus promised to build His church, and He said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word there is not hell. The word is Hades. It is Hades. Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church, and the realm of the dead will not prevail against it. What was Jesus' point? He was telling his disciples, for three years he was saying, the kingdom's coming, kingdom's coming, kingdom's coming, but he knows he's just about to die. So he is telling them, I'm going to build my church, the kingdom is coming, and the fact that I'm going to die and go into the realm of the dead is not going to prevent the kingdom from coming. That's his point. He's not saying the gates of hell are not going to stop his kingdom, but the way the King James reads, it's confusing. If you don't understand the distinction in these two words, it's going to cause you some difficulties. Now, as a side note, the Old Testament word for Hades is Hebrew, and it is Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. When you read Sheol in the Old Testament, it is Hades, it's just in Hebrew. In the New Testament, 
It is Hades. It is Hades is talking about the same place. When you understand that all people go to Hades when they die, it's going to clear up some things for you. For example, Acts chapter 2 and verse 31 refers to Jesus after his death as being in Hades. The King James says hell. Brethren, Jesus did not go to hell when he died. Jesus did go to Hades when he died, specifically the compartment of Hades called paradise. You remember Luke 23, 43, he told the thief on the cross, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. When you understand that paradise and torment are both compartments of Hades, it makes sense for you. Now, the best description I know of in the Bible of Hades is in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 26. So let's read it together, and then we'll make some observations. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, the Bible says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who fared sumptuously every day. And there was a beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, it's actually the word Hades, And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. He's in Hades, specifically in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, and he said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all of this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they who would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us who would come from thence. Now let's talk about this. First, I want you to look at the top of the chart here where Lazarus was taken. This is paradise. We are told that he died and he's carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. It's the place called paradise. It's the same place that Jesus told the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Luke 16, 25 tells us that in this place the righteous are comforted. In fact, if you do a word study and study the origin of the word uh, paradise, it carries with it the idea of a pleasure garden. It is very interesting to me that if you ask people, in fact, studies have been done through the years and they survey people and they ask them, what is the thing you fear most in the world? You know what people usually say, the the top two things people fear most? Number one is death. Number two, frequently, is public speaking. That's very interesting to me. But they fear death the most. Could that be the reason why when we die... The Bible says that there are angels awaiting us. Here Lazarus dies and angels escort him to paradise. My father-in-law was a faithful gospel preacher and he died about two years ago. And we were there with him when he died in the assisted living home. And we watched his body settle down as he breathed that last breath. Beyond our ability to see in the realm of the spirits, I know that angels escorted him to go to paradise, because that's what the Bible tells us. Could it be because that is what man fears most, death? Could that be why God has angels immediately waiting to say, do not be afraid, and they escort us to paradise? 
If you look at the bottom of the chart here, you have torment. This is the other area where the dwelling place of the dead go to await the day of judgment. This is where the rich man went. This is the place called torment. This is the section of Hades called Tartarus in the original Greek. Peter references this in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 when he says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. This place is described for us in verses 22 and 23 this way. Verse 22 says, The rich man also died and was buried. Listen to 23. It says, And in hell, the word is actually Hades, and in Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment. Sometimes when I preach on this, I will spend some time talking about the misery and the suffering in this place. I've got several whole sermons just on that. But would you very briefly notice with me that this rich man who died and lifted up his eyes in torment, he is burning in fire. Would you observe with me that he is crying out and begging for mercy, but he's not getting any? He believes that one mere drop of water on the tip of his tongue would bring him a moment's relief. Would you observe with me that he had no angels awaiting to escort him? He had no one to say, fear not. He simply lifted up his eyes and began his suffering. And would you finally appreciate with me that every person from the beginning of time until now who has died lost in the eyes of God are in that place. Many have been there for thousands of years, some for months, some for moments. Appreciate with me also that in the Hadean realm, in Hades, that there is consciousness there. Now this is important because some in the religious world teach a doctrine called soul sleeping. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach this. They teach that when you die, you just go to sleep and you aren't aware of anything until the day of judgment. Would you notice that that's not what this text teaches? The Bible does not teach this. The rich man is crying in pain. Lazarus is comforted. Psalm 116 and verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. It's not precious to God that we just become unconscious. It's precious to God when we enter into reward. Several years ago, I preached a sermon similar to this in McMinnville, Tennessee. And a brother walked out afterwards, and he said, Don, that was a great lesson. He said, but uh, you're wrong about there being consciousness in Hades. And he handed me a piece of paper and he walked off. Well, I unfolded it and I looked at it. The piece of paper said, Ecclesiastes 9.5, the dead know not anything. And what he was saying is, you don't know anything when you die. Incidentally, that's exactly the same verse the Jehovah's Witnesses use. His problem was, he was taking this out of context. Because if you look at Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5 says the dead know not anything. Verse 6 uses the phrase, under the sun. Ecclesiastes 9.3, under the sun. 9.9, under the sun. 9.13, under the sun. Under the sun, if you look back to the first step on the chart, refers to this world. We are the realm that is under the sun. What we're being told is, when you go into the realm of the dead, you don't know what's going on back under the sun. In other words, you don't know what's going back, taking place back on the earth anymore. You know, it is a, a doctrine that is commonly taught that when people die and they go into Hades or into paradise, that they watch us from there. In fact, there was a song that I liked that was out, uh, I can't remember in the 80s or 90s, Steve Warner was the one who sang it. It was called, There's Holes in the Floor of Heaven. 
You remember, I see some people nodding. You remember that song. The song was, the man had lost his wife and he had to raise his daughter alone. And through the whole song, he's singing, there's holes in the floor of heaven and she's watching over us. And a lot of people have that idea. But the Bible says the dead know not anything back under the sun. And it makes sense. Could you imagine being in paradise and seeing all the terrible things that are happening here on this world? Could you imagine being in paradise and watching the earth during 2020? I mean, that is the way this year has gone down. And now somebody might say, look, I disagree with you about this. I can prove this point I'm making. In 2 Chronicles chapter 34, God told King Josiah that he was going to bring punishment on Jerusalem for their sins. But what he said to him is, you are going to die before I do that. So listen to this, 2 Chronicles 34 and verse 28, he says, Surely I will gather you to your fathers, you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, therefore your eyes will not see all the calamity that I bring upon this place. Now what's the point of that? You're going to be dead, so you're not going to see it. You're not going to be watching this world and see the things that take place here. Now one final thing I want you to notice about the Hadean realm. Notice on the chart the green line between paradise and torment. That is there to represent the fact that the Bible says that between paradise and torment there is a, a great gulf. Luke 16, 26, in the account of the rich man and Lazarus, it says great gulf, there's a divide, there's a division so that people can't pass from one side to the other. That means if you die and go to paradise, you are there to stay until the day of judgment. If you die and go to torment, you are there to stay until the day of judgment. That means the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory is false. You don't go to one and stay there a little while and cross over into the other. And so that means that every person who has died and gone to torment is still there. Some of them for months, some of them for years, some of them for seconds. But I envision them like the rich man crying out, I am tormented in this flame. But it never ends. Next. The next part of our chart is the resurrection. We typically call the resurrection day, most of the time Christians call it the judgment day. The Bible usually calls it the day of the Lord. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. What's going to happen on that day, the day of the Lord, the judgment day, what's going to happen on that day to the people who are in Hades? Well... On that day, what's going to happen? Listen carefully. On that day, paradise and torment are going to be emptied of souls, and the earth is going to give up its bodies, and they're going to be reunited. Now listen carefully, because we're going to tie this together. John 5, 28, Jesus says, The hour is coming in which all that are in the graves, this is the Greek word for tombs, shall hear his voice, and they shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. They that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. The spirits, the bodies are going to be reunited. But listen, the resurrected body is going to be different from this body. The resurrected body is not going to be the same particles, if you will. It's not going to be the same material, for lack of a better term. Sometimes I've known Christians who have, have expressed concern about being cremated. Because they've said, in fact, I remember a, a sweet Christian uh, elderly lady saying to me one time, Brother Don, would it be okay to be cremated? And I said, sure, why not? And she said, it seems like that's going to be a problem on the day of judgment when the Lord resurrects us if, if I'm cremated. Brethren, it's not going to be a problem. The Lord who made us from the dust of the ground can bring us back once again. 
But this is what I know, and this is why it's not going to be a problem. 1 Corinthians 15.50 says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's not going to be this fleshly body that is going to go to heaven. In fact, listen what the Bible says as, he, as the Lord describes this. In 1 Corinthians 15.44, he says the body, that is the physical body, is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. So if I were going to break this down, I would point out, number one, he says the resurrected body is going to be incorruptible. You see, these current bodies we have, they get old, they wear out, they go through all the things we read, your hair turns gray, your hands begin to shake, you can't see. These bodies get old and wear out. The new body, he says, won't be like that. He says the resurrected body will be glorious. Brethren, if we would be honest, there are many things associated with this body that are lowly and vile and that are not glorious. But he said it's going to be different with the resurrected body. He says the resurrected body will be raised in power. These bodies get tired, they are weak, they have to sleep. He said won't be the case with the resurrected body. He says this is a natural body, that will be a spiritual body. So the day of resurrection, the judgment day, is the day that Hades will be destroyed, we will get our new resurrected bodies, and we will all stand before the Lord in judgment. Now, someone might say, well, Don, what about, what if the, the, the day of judgment came today? What about those of us who are still living? You told us what would happen to the people in Hades. What if, if, what if we're still living? The Bible answers that also in just a few verses later. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump of God, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, that's people in Hades, and we shall be changed. That is, those of us who are still living on that day, just like that. We're going to be changed into that new incorruptible body, and then we're all going to go to the judgment scene. That's going to bring us to the next part of our chart here. This is the judgment. After both the good and the bad receive their resurrected bodies, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Matthew 25 and 32 says... All nations shall be gathered before him, and he shall separate them as a shepherd divides a sheep from the goats. Friends, on that day, all of humanity, from Adam and Eve onward, will stand there. On that day, the rich man and Lazarus will stand before God to receive their eternal judgment. On that day, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will stand before God. On that day, Ahab, Jezebel, and Judas will stand before God. Romans 14 and verse 12 says, So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that which he that hath done, whether it be good or evil. Now sometimes people have said, Well, what is the point of the judgment... If you've already been in Hades, and you've already been in paradise, or you've already been in torment, what's the point of the judgment? It kind of seems like you've already been judged, doesn't it? But you see, I think we think of this incorrectly, because we think of the judgment day as a day in which God's going to weigh the facts and say, oh, he gets to go to heaven, no, he's going to go to hell. It's not like that. The moment you die, God already knows if you're going to go to heaven or hell. In fact, we would probably more accurately call it the pronouncement of Judgment Day. 
It's going to be the day in which the Lord will state the reasons why you are lost. He's going to state the reasons why you were saved. It's not that He's weighing the facts and figuring this out. He's going to give you the reasons why this is the case. Now somebody says, well, it still seems unnecessary. The righteous and the wicked already know where, where they're going to spend eternity. I want to suggest to you the judgment day is important for several reasons. Number one, it's important for those of us who are still living because we haven't been to torment or paradise, and so it's necessary for us. Number two, it's important so that righteousness may be displayed. Now you may say, what are you talking about? I want you to think about this. The last time the world saw Jesus Christ, he had been condemned to die as a criminal. But on the day of judgment, the Bible says, every eye shall see him as the righteous judge. It will be a day of vindication. His righteousness will be seen. Number three, it is a day of exposure. Friends, the reasons why a man is lost will be stated. The reasons why a man is saved will be heralded. I don't believe there will be one single person in heaven who doesn't know why he is there. Likewise, there will not be one single person in hell who doesn't know why he is there. And so the judgment day is also very important. This takes us to the last step on the chart, and this is going to be heaven or hell. This is eternity. Matthew 25, 46, Jesus says, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Mankind has been created in the image of God and thus has been given an eternal soul. Each person in this room, you have a soul that will last and live forever somewhere. You see on the chart there are two alternatives for where you will spend that eternity. One at the top is heaven, at the bottom is hell. To those who are going to go to heaven, it's a place of eternal bliss. It is the place that Jesus says, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's called life eternal. At the bottom, you can see the place that's called hell. It is described in Revelation 21.8 as the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's the place Jesus has in mind in Matthew 25 when he says, These shall go away into everlasting punishment. Some people have been putting forth the idea in recent years that going to hell just means that you just, you just burn up. You just cease to exist. Friends, that is not what the Bible teaches Listen to this. Revelation 14 and verse 11 says, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. I cannot imagine anything more terrifying than that. A person who dies and goes to hell has tomorrow and the next day and the next year and the next million years to burn and suffer, and each day that passes, he is no closer to the end. At the point of birth, the Lord places a soul in my human body, the tent. And for the next 70 or 80 or 90, even 100 years, that soul is going to dwell in me. During that time, I'm going to love God with my soul, or I'm not. I'm going to worship God with my soul, or I'm not. And then I'm going to die. I'm going to go into Hades, either to paradise or torment, depending on the life that I led, where I will be until the day of judgment. I will stand before God on the right hand or the left side, and then I will hear the words, either come inherit the kingdom or depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I'm going to tell you a quick story that is the truth, and then I'm going to wrap up this lesson. 
I moved from Charleston, South Carolina, where I had preached for about nine years, and I moved to Memphis, Tennessee several years ago. Before I made the move, we had a man in the congregation who liked to ride his motorcycle to work. One particular morning, he was riding it, and it had been raining. He was not wearing a helmet. He was kind of stubborn that way. On this particular morning, as he was riding, we don't know what happened exactly. Someone says they think that the car behind him might have bumped his wheel, but he lost control, and he smashed his head on the pavement. No helmet. They sent a helicopter, and they medevaced him to the Medical University of South Carolina. When they got him there, they sent for his family. His wife came. She knew that he had been unfaithful to the church for some time. He knew that as well. In fact, we had not seen him in months. This, I think, was maybe a Monday or a Tuesday when he had the accident. We had not seen him in months. The irony was, two days before, on that Sunday, he showed up for services. First time we'd seen him in ages. And he sat in the foyer with his face in his hand like he was distraught. And I thought, he's going to repent tonight and get his life right. But he did not. We shook hands. He left. And he got on his motorcycle a day or two later and smashed his head on the pavement. So his wife came to him in the hospital. She's desperate. She knows his condition. She stood next to him. And she squeezed his hand and she said, I'm going to say a prayer asking that you can be forgiven of your sins. Why'd she do that? She didn't know what else to do. She's desperate. She said, if you hear me and you acknowledge this, I want you to squeeze my hand. So she said this prayer and she said, I think he squeezed my hand. We don't know. Only the Lord knows. The doctor said sometimes those type things are reflexes. Now you say, why are you telling me that story? I'm telling you that story simply to say this. Brethren, all of us go through life thinking we've got plenty of time. Some of us who are not living right think, I'll make it right tomorrow. I will make it right the next day, but I've got plenty of time to do this. I've got the idea this brother came to services on that Sunday night thinking, I've got plenty of time and I'm going to make it right. Maybe if his mind was still working, he was a Christian, he could pray for forgiveness. If his mind was still working, maybe he made things right with God. I don't know, and we won't know until the day of judgment. But imagine something happening. You pull out of this parking lot today, and a truck smashes your car, and you go into eternity, and you open your eyes, and you say, I just heard a sermon about that. I'm going to leave you with this thought. Where do we go when we die? The answer is, it depends on where we are when we're living. It depends on which path you are traveling. If you are traveling the straight and narrow as a New Testament Christian, you will die, you'll go to paradise, you'll stand on the right-hand side of God, and you'll go to heaven. If you are in the broad category, you will die, you will go to torment, you will stand on the left side of God, and you will spend eternity in hell. Where you will go when you die depends on where you are when you're living. Thank you so much for your attention this morning. I appreciate it very much.